to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. continuing in our summer sermon series titled, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, in which Jesus likens rather than defines a kingdom called heaven to the complexity and mystery of human activities such as scattering seed, resting in trees, finding treasure, and casting nets. Uh, By exploring these parables, it is our sincere hope to encourage a community that more fully embodies a kingdom like heaven which gestures toward the mystery of God and life of Christ in this world. So far, we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is like a generous farmer who lavishly scatters seed everywhere, giving every kind of soil the opportunity to flourish and grow. And last week, we saw that the kingdom of heaven is like indiscriminate trees and bread that give rest and food to seemingly everyone. If we were meeting together in person this morning, I would ask you to raise your hand if you watched the TV show Lost. Lost, spanning the years 2004 to 2010, many of us tuned in weekly to follow the lives of the survivors of a commercial jet flying between Sydney and Los Angeles. After crashing on a mysterious island somewhere in the South Pacific Ocean, this drama-slash-mystery-slash-sci-fi show bent our brains as we tried to figure out what is going on. Where are they? Why is there a polar bear? (laughs) Who will survive? And of course, how will it all end? How will it all end? That's a question that we 21st century folk really seem to care about. And so, when we all tuned in for the final episode where Jack and Desmond and Kate and Sawyer and Locke and Anna Lucia and others gathered together in a sun-dappled room, and they sat side by side in pews, much like a church, I think many of us were expecting we were wanting answers to all of our questions. We wanted finality on what had happened. We wanted finality on where they had been. We wanted finality on that stupid polar bear, <laughs> or, or at least I did. We wanted finality on who had survived. What we wanted was a crisp and clean conclusion. What we were longing for was resolution. This is what it all means. This is how it all works together. This is how it all ends. In Christian theology, this is called eschatology, the study of the eschaton, the end. And about this, books are written and maps are drawn and movies are made because we want to know this is what it all means. This is how it all works together. This is how it all ends. And yet, besides the book of Revelation, a few peculiar epistolary texts 
and Jesus' very few words about the end, we really don't have a whole lot to go on. In fact, if we're reading honestly and carefully, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And when Jesus talks about the end, he almost always speaks in parables. And to be clear, apocalyptic and parabolic literature are not the kind of literature intended to explain in detail how it all ends. Rather, these types of literature exist to rouse our imagination to get us thinking about life today, here and now. And just to get you thinking about how confusing eschatology can be, I'll begin by explaining the many ways that today's parable can be understood. The parable begins with these words in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. He put before them a parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So... When the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, following this parable, Jesus tells the mustard seed and yeast parables that we looked at last week in verses 31 to 35. But then after those parables, in verses 36 to 43, Jesus returns to the weeds parable with these words. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out his kingdom, of his kingdom, all that causes sin and evil doers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be gnashing and weeping. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. According to Jesus here, the Son of Man will send all evildoers into a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, If we're reading honestly and carefully here, we must admit that we don't have a lot to go off of. I mean, what we usually do is is we take whatever eschatology has been told to us about about heaven and hell, and, and we layer it upon texts like this. And so we imagine that that the furnace of fire is hell, to which unsaved people go to forever. And we imagine that the righteous who shine like the sun are the saved who live in heaven forever. But just to show how unclear this all is, the quote-unquote evildoers cannot be unsaved people. 
because according to this thinking, Jesus has yet to become an atoning sacrifice. There is yet to be a salvation by grace. And going just a tad deeper, according to this parable, faith has nothing to do with that which separates the good from the bad, because in this parable, Jesus is speaking ethically, ethically about people who do good and people who do evil. And that sounds a lot like works, not grace. Do you see what I mean? And here's what's also unclear. Our layering of theology upon texts like this may tempt us to say that bad people go to hell forever. But do they? This parable says nothing about the length of torment. Also, it may be helpful to notice that this parable doesn't tell us where the righteous who shine like the sun live. Are they here on earth or are they up in heaven? And furthermore, did you notice that in this parable no one has actually died? And so are the righteous who shine like the sun, referring to Jesus' original audience, or to us in 2021, or to a people a long time after us who will witness the very, very end, whatever that will be? And just for kicks, what happens to everyone who dies before this quote-unquote ending? Are they asleep? Are they alive without bodies? I mean, what exactly is going on here? This is what it all means. This is how it all works together. This is how it all ends. Do you see what I mean? And then, of course, there's history, which tells us that our layering of end-time theology on biblical texts is actually much different from the layering of the earliest Jesus followers. According to church history, the earliest Jesus followers looked at life through a lens that's called Jewish apocalyptic perspective. According to Jewish apocalyptic perspective, the end of Rome's reign was quickly approaching. According to Jewish apocalyptic perspective, the Son of Man would, with might and violence, overthrow the empire. And according to Jewish apocalyptic perspective, the evil would either be annihilated or purged. That's really important to note. When many of us think of end times in regard to those who are wicked, we have been taught to think of eternal damnation. But that's not what the early church often thought. Damnation, fire, was primarily thought about as one of two things. Either annihilation or purging. Either annihilation, the evil completely perish, or the evil are purged. That is to say, rather than endless punishment, the fire of God was thought about as a refiner's fire that over time cleansed the wicked and made them holy. This is what it all means. This is how it all works together. This is how it all ends. Do you see what I mean? We cannot possibly make this parable into a description about the end of this world or about the afterlife. And if we insist on making it into part of a description on the afterlife, it's most honest for us to say that our interpretation is very often much different from the earliest Jesus movement. And so, what are we to do with this parable? Well, if we can get away from our propensity to understand how it all ends, 
I think we're better situated to understand the soul of this parable, which is very much about today. Here's what I mean. The meaning of this parable begins to find its meaning in the inciting incident. A man sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat. And so, when the servants saw weeds growing among the wheat, they had two impulses. Impulse number one, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? And impulse number two, Do you want us to go out and pull up the weeds? Let's take a few moments to think about these two impulses. Impulse number one, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? In other words, God, how did this happen? God, why did you allow for this? God, if you are all-knowing and all-powerful and all that is truly good, then why is there evil in the world? Sounds a lot like Job, doesn't it? God, this makes no sense. Or like Martha after her brother Lazarus died. Jesus, had you been here, my brother would be alive. Why weren't you here? And of course, when something doesn't go as we think it ought, or when something is more confusing or painful than we think that we can bear, what do we do? Well, after blame, we go to that second impulse, right? Do you want us to go out and pull up the weeds? In other words, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, which in this parable is violence toward the weeds. It's violence toward the evil doers. And with all of this in mind, we're now ready for the soul of the parable. The owner of the field replies to the servant's request to pull up the weeds with these words. No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, again, we need to avoid the temptation to make this into eschatology. If this parable is saying anything about the end, it's saying that we, the servants, have nothing to do with the end. That's not our work. Our work, what has to do with us, is this precious thing called today. And today, so says this parable, our work is to let the weeds and wheat grow together. Because if we try and pull up the weeds, we may accidentally uproot the wheat. Now this, this I think is good, so very good. A couple thoughts. First, this world is filled with good and bad. It just is. This world is filled with right and wrong. This world is filled with ease and difficulty. And we can spend we can spend our entire lives blaming the divine. Or we can spend our entire lives trying to root out all that is bad by means of, of violence. But there is no immediate utopia to be found. This parable points to a very long, very slow march toward perfect love. And if our first impulse is to pull it out, pull it up with the expectation of perfection, then we are going to live our lives sorely disappointed. 
For example, if we think, well, once he passes on, things will be better. Or, once my child gets through this stage, everything is going to be okay. Or, once I get over this ailment, everything will be good. Or, you fill in the blank. If we live our lives like that, then we will miss the invitation of today which is to nurture goodness in the midst of the bad and the wrong and the difficult. And truly, goodness in the midst of the bad? Well, that's what often makes the good all the more delightfully and intoxicatingly good. And here's a second thought about this parable. The good and the bad, the wheat and the weeds, they are so close together They're so close together that if we pull one, we're in danger of pulling the other. And in my mind, this points to how closely related we all are. Like, what if by pulling weeds, the bad, we accidentally pull some of the wheat, the good? And taking some creative license here, what if the bad and the good aren't binary? Like, we often think of a person as being good or bad, but what if a person is both good and bad? And going even further, what if good and bad isn't just in others? What if good and bad is in us all? Well, if that's the case, then pulling out the bad isn't the solution. Or rather, the solution may be to see how we might transform or renew the quote-unquote bad. And another, perhaps better word for this, may be integration. Integration. Thinking in terms of psychoanalysis, integration is the process by which a well-balanced psyche becomes whole as the developing ego organizes the id by countering the fragmenting effect of defense mechanisms. Which is to say, rather than trying to cut out our bad thoughts or our quote-unquote bad impulses or our bad lives, what if the divine invitation is to see how the fractured parts of ourselves and others might grow together up into more and more wholeness? Oh, well, that would be beautiful, wouldn't it? And that makes me want to ask, How? How do we, rather than violently pulling up bad weeds, work toward the goodness of integration? Well, if you've been paying close attention to our summer sermon series, then you may have noticed that last week I skipped the parable of the weeds, which begins in verse 24, and I focused on the mustard seed and yeast parables, which begin in verse 31. And I did this because the parable of the weeds is actually split in half. In verses 24 to 30, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds. But then in verses 31 to 35 are the parables of the mustard seed and yeast. But then those parables are followed by a return to the parable of the weeds in verses 36 to 43, in which Jesus explains the parable of the weeds. And this, you see, uh, makes the parables of the weeds a chiasm. Now, Pastor Ben explained a chiasm in his sermon a couple weeks ago, but put simply, a chiasm is a literary construct that moves A, B, A. And the B, the middle portion of a chiasm, is central to the overall meaning of the entire passage. 
Now, with this in mind, the two A sections of this passage point out that the weeds and wheat are too close together to spend our lives going around and pulling up weeds, which rouses the question, how? How then do we, rather than violently pull up bad weeds, work together toward the goodness of integration? Well, remembering last week's sermon on the parable about the mustard seed and the bread, the B portion of the chiasm, we do so patiently and indiscriminately. Patiently. The good and the bad will abide together until the end of time. This isn't so much a human problem as it is a human reality. And so, like a tree that gives rest to birds, or like bread that feeds the hungry, we are learning to indiscriminately give rest and sustenance not only to those around us, but even to ourselves. And not just to those who are good, but according to this parable of the weeds, but to those who are less than good. Which is every single one of us, because we are all both wheat and weeds. And the work, our work today is not judging and pulling, (laughs) judging and pulling, judging and pulling, judging and pulling. What a terrible way to go about one's very short life. Rather, our work today, the invitation of the divine is to patiently and hopefully tend to nurturing the wholeness of every person in all of the goodness and in all of that which is bad. When we all tuned in for the final episode of Lost, Jack and Desmond and Kate and Sawyer and Locke and Anna Lucia and others were gathered together in a sun-dappled room, and they sat side by side in pews, much like a church. And we were expecting, we were wanting answers to all of our questions. But rather than answers to all of our questions, what we got was Jack and Desmond and Kate and Sawyer and Locke and Anna Lucia and others who were gathered together in a sun-dappled room sitting side by side in pews much like a church. Much like our church. And we so terribly want finality, good, bad, right, wrong, up, down, and yet all we have is this. All we have is this life together. I mean, we can try and run to other lives, to different people in different places, but there will be weeds and wheat together wherever we go. And so, Pearl Church, why not lean into what is? Why not live out the mystery together? Why not embrace the good and the bad while committing to patiently and indiscriminately accept one another as we journey together into more and more wholeness and integration? For truly, what if the disorienting sense of being lost, which we all have, what if that disorienting sense of being lost is merely life? Life in which we are learning to welcome even the shadows, trusting that they not only have a place, but that they have the potential to shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. Well, if we could get to that place, if we could live with that perspective, then we would live today, today, with so much hope. Hope for others, hope for ourselves, and even hope for this broken but beautiful world. And let us pray. 
Divine love, fill us with hope and patience toward others, ourselves, and this world until the whole thing shines like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.